0: Hey, I'm Jess Binneth. And I'm Kate Montague. And you're listening to the Audiocraft Podcast, a series of sessions from our 2018 festival, recorded on the day by ABCRN. This is another edition of Under the Hood, featuring the talented producers of Melbourne-based indie romance podcast, Love and Luck. In this session, we get a detailed look at the writing, casting and production process of this fiction audio drama. On stage, we have Erin Kyan and Lee Davis-Thalburn. Erin's the driving force behind Love and Luck, He's a disabled, queer, trans person who's passionate about the transformative power of art and emotion. In producing this podcast, Erin draws on his experience in stage work, community education and interactive fiction and Lee Davis-Tholburn, he's a gentle cat lover with a talent for stats and detailed oriented work. Lee used to think he was best at helping out behind the scenes until he got involved with the Love & Love podcast, where he found himself in a more central role as a co-producer and voice
1: actor. Hello. Oh, Sorry background in performing art so not used to mics this good. Um
2: so
1: yeah so I'm Erin um and
2: this and, is Lee. Uh, and we're here to talk to you about how we make the Love and Luck podcast. And we'll just play you a little bit of it.
1: You've reached the Love and Luck Podcast.
2: Hi, it's Kane. I just wanted to say, I had a lot of fun last night, and I'd like to do it again if you can. Give me a call back if you are and we'll see if we can find a good time.
1: Hey, Jason here. Sorry I missed your call. I had a really good time too, and I'd definitely like to see you again. You ever go to the Greyhound Hotel? It's a gay pub slash nightclub in St Kilda. There's a drag show tomorrow, which is always amazing, as well as good tunes and dancing. Maybe I'll see you there?
2: Hey, it's Kane again. Looks like I missed you again. I haven't been to the Greyhound, but it sounds like it could be fun, so I'll give it a shot. I'll see you there. Hi, Jason. It's Kane. I just wanted to say, normally clubbing really isn't my thing, but I actually had a lot of fun last night. Thanks for showing me such a good time.
1: Hey, it's Jason, playing phone tag with you again. We're clearly very bad at actually answering our phones. So that's the setup for the show. Um, The whole show is told via voicemails, uh, and it's a fiction podcast. Um, So before we continue, um, I would just like to acknowledge that we meet on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all indigenous people who are here or who may be listening. Sovereignty was never ceded.
2: So before we start, we should mention that Love and Luck is actually our very first podcast. In fact, our very first audio based project in general.
1: Yeah, podcasting and specifically audio drama was something I was really interested in learning more about um, and learning how to do. Um, and since I'm a very learn-by-doing sort of person, I decided to just make one. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I figured I'd just jump, it, jump in the deep end and learn on the go. Um, and that's worked out really well um, because now we have this show that we really like making and that
2: people say they enjoy. So let's talk about how we actually make it.
1: Yeah, so you might think that... With an audio drama, the first thing you start with is the story or the script, Um, and that's a great instinct, but it's completely wrong. Uh, (laughs) You don't start with an idea, you actually start with a plan. See, the thing is, ideas are very easy. Um, Anyone can come up with a good idea, you're creative people, you know how to do that. Um, You can polish any idea, but before you get to ideas, you have to consider your options for realising them.
2: It's not what you do, it's how you do it, so to speak. Right.
1: Right so the first thing i did was start a design document Uh, now this is a living document it's something that you update throughout the production cycle Um, and the our design document included things like the scope of the project the format the schedule the production timeline and cycle Um, what else Uh, themes beginnings of plot ideas um, and the start of a marketing narrative Um, I find design documents really useful because they work well for the way I think um, and they work well for my disability because I have neurological issues that means I can't remember a damn thing. So I need to make sure I write things down. Um, And I also use a Trello board for that reason um, for the project so I can keep track of what has been done and what still
2: needs doing. So the first thing we decided on was the scope of the project. Scope is probably the most important thing to consider for any project. Yeah. So
1: scope is a fancy project management term um, and it basically just means your resources and your ability and capacity to implement those resources.
2: Uh, Resources include obvious things like money and technology, but also include things like time, skills, and passion. Uh, How much time you have to spend on a project, whether or not you have the skills to do it, and how excited you are are huge questions you need to answer before you know if you can do something.
1: Now, that might sound a little stifling, um, but actually restriction can be incredibly liberating creatively. you know, once you have restrictions, you can build your idea to fit them. Um, Any creative person, as I'm sure most of you also know, the absolute worst guideline to be given is just do whatever you want. Uh, Because that doesn't tell you anything. That doesn't tell you what you should be working towards or with or anything like that. Um, So, you know, getting things done, direction, Is needed to get things done and one of the easiest ways to find that direction is to look at the scope of the project.
2: So let's talk about how scope affected our production.
1: Right so the first thing that was really really clear was that we needed a season-long production cycle um, rather than an episodic one.
2: So a lot of podcasts including audio drama are made episode to episode with each episode being produced and finished and published before the next one is started. Uh, We simply don't have time for that, um, and Aaron doesn't have the health for that. Uh, We knew we couldn't reliably uh, produce episode to episode. Uh, For the episode to be reliable in any sense, uh, we had to have a season-long production cycle. And there's actually a lot of benefits to that. Um, It means that we get to plan everything out ahead of time, uh, including the story, and each season is this totally contained little package without us having to worry about dropping things along the way.
1: Yeah, and it also means that we can focus on just one aspect of the show at any given time. So first we focus on writing, then on casting, then on rehearsing, then recording, then editing, then publishing, etc. cetera. Um, so with the season production cycle, we knew that if we could make a show in 12 months, it would be sustainable. We could start work on season two as season one started
2: airing. So this is our production timeline. Uh, We'll go into detail in all these parts in a while, but this is what the big picture of a year's worth of work on the show looks like.
1: Um, And for those listening to the podcasted version of this, um, in October, the outline for the season is written. In September, the first draft is written. Sorry, in uh, November, the first draft is written. Did I say that? Sorry. Um, December and January, second draft is written. February, we start casting. Um, In March, we finish casting and start rehearsing. April we rehearse, May we rehearse and we start recording Um, and in June and July we record and then in August we splice and mix the episodes and in September um, that's where we caption and we upload everything privately and then in mid-September that's when the season finally starts airing. So now we have a timeline um, that was built very organically just from asking ourselves, okay, what kind of production cycle can we feasibly do?
2: So the next thing we decided on was schedule. Um, audio fiction podcasts usually release fortnightly, but Aaron doesn't like that, so we decided on a weekly release schedule instead.
1: Yeah, I, I prefer to know when things are coming out exactly. Um, and weekly releases also mean that people come to associate Tuesdays with Love and Luck Day. Um, and just from a marketing perspective, it's also better. Uh, more frequent and regular updates uh, tends to see better numbers and retention rates. Um, So I I chose Tuesday as the day we publish because I did a lot of research um, into what the best day of the week to drop a podcast episode was Um, and at the time I was looking Tuesday was universally considered the best day. Um, and that worked really well for me because Tuesdays are very quiet for me. So I knew that I would have the time to make sure that an episode went live safely and to post on social media about a new episode being up and that kind of
2: thing. Uh, we also post episodes at 8pm at night, uh, which is a little unusual, I think. But we wanted to make sure that we hit people's podcast, podcatchers at a useful time of day, uh, regardless of their time zone. So, 8pm at night means we're there for the Australians and New Zealanders that want to listen to us before bed, but we're also there for the morning commute for our international listeners.
1: Right. So, we knew we wanted to upload weekly, and we knew we wanted a full season, so the next question was how many episodes would we make per season? Um, I wanted to cover most of the year, um, so I decided to aim for 50 episodes Um, that would cover us for most of the year and give us a little bit of a break in between seasons.
2: We didn't quite make that for season one. We only have 48 episodes in season one. But then we make up for it because season two is going to have 52 episodes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, look, having such a regular schedule and such a long season also meant that I felt we could write shorter episodes, which I felt much more comfortable doing. Um, and so, we, our episodes are about six to ten minutes, about a thousand words per episode. Um, and yeah, that's pretty much what we did. Um, and so, fifty episodes, thousand words per episode, that's fifty thousand words I would need to write. Um, and I knew I could do that, because I've done it before. And this was a decision that was easily made, again, just from going, well what are we capable of doing? What am I capable of writing?
2: Alright, right, so let's talk about how the scope of the project actually affected the story. Yes,
1: so the scope of the project was hugely influential on the story and structure of Love and Luck. Uh, For example, I didn't want to have to rely on volunteer actors too much, so I had to keep my cast numbers low. Um, I knew Lee was interested in voice acting and I figured I can do some voice acting. Um, So I went, okay, I've got two actors that can do the bulk of the work. Um, So, I can have two characters. So, what kind of story can I tell with two main characters? What lends itself to that? Well,
2: romance, of course.
1: Right. So, that was our genre decided by scope. Um, So, the next question was format. Format how was I gonna present this show to the audience?
2: So as you heard before, uh, we tell the whole story via voicemails. There's no narration and there's very little real-time interaction between characters. You just hear messages they leave for each other. So why did you decide that? So scope is only half the answer on this one. Um, The scope
1: half of the answer is that I was really nervous about editing audio of people interacting in real time because I'm very new to it. I wanted something that was a little bit going to be a bit easier on me as a newbie editor. Um, The non scope answer, the non scope half to this answer is that I really love epistolary fiction. Um, I'm a big gamer and I really love in video games where you can like. Uh, you know, find audio logs and notes and stuff like that and kind of piece together a story from this fictional primary source. Um, even as a kid, one of my favourite books was called Dear Mr. Sprouts by Errol Broome, um, which the whole book is just told in letters between pen pals except for the epilogue.
2: Now, you said that was a non-scope thing, but actually that's not entirely true because you might remember that one of the things we included in resources was passion.
1: And that is a very good point because it's always going to be easier to work on something that you're passionate about. Um, If I made an epistolary podcast, I knew that I would care enough about it to actually finish it. You know, so even though that decision was made based on what I like, that doesn't mean it wasn't a scope decision because it was still made based on what am I realistically able to expect from myself.
2: Now, we could talk about how scope affected our recording, but I think that I'm actually best left to when we actually talk about recording in general.
1: Yeah, because our scope changed dramatically um, between pre-production planning and actually recording, Um, so we'll get to that. Um, But the short version is that when I was planning, I figured I would record the show on my little Zoom H1 at home, um, and that would do us fine.
2: Uh, But that is something worth pointing out here, actually. Sometimes the scope of the project changes. And all you can really do in that situation is just ride the wave and make it work. Um, There's always going to be an element of improvisation or drastic adjustments in any production. So making a plan doesn't mean unplanned things don't happen. It just gives you a roadmap to follow. And when things go topsy-turvy, hopefully you're prepared for that. So I do want to briefly talk about something that I really
1: genuinely enjoy, much to the horror of all my artist friends, marketing.
2: Yeah, so you (laughs) might think that marketing is something you think about when it's time to launch. We are here to tell you that is far too late.
1: Yeah. So as part of our pre-production planning, I actually began work on a marketing plan. Now, a marketing plan doesn't have to be in detail at the beginning or finished or anything like that, but it's got to be on your mind all through the production Um, And marketing plans like design documents, they're living documents. You update them throughout the production cycle.
2: Yeah, marketing in general isn't something you just do at one moment in production. It's something that should happen throughout the whole cycle.
1: Yeah, so let's talk about our marketing plan.
2: So some of the things that our marketing plan included were things like our goals, our marketing narrative, our social media campaign ideas, advertising possibilities, ideas for launch celebrations, media outreach plans, and templates and ideas for our press releases and our press kit. Uh, We also drew up a rough timeline of when these things would need attention.
1: Yeah, and as I said, this got updated all throughout the cycle. It's not like all of this was born fully formed. Um, So the first thing we did, though, was define our audience. Um, so we knew we were making the show predominantly for LGBTIQA plus people. Um, we hope that straight people enjoy it too, but we didn't make it for them.
2: Um, <laughs> Age-wise, we knew we were mostly aiming at younger people, from teenagers to people in their 30s. Again, we hope that older people enjoy the show too, but we felt that younger people were more likely to be a bit more tech savvy and understand podcasts and social media a little better.
1: And understanding social media was really important because we don't have much of a budget. Um, so most of our reach was going to be via social media or word of mouth
2: and this has trended mostly true actually uh, the fans who interact with us the most on social media are mostly teenagers
1: yeah and on a, on a personal note that, that means a lot to us we get Uh, quite a lot of messages from queer teenagers or young adults who find that listening to the show makes them feel like they can have a good life and they can find someone who will love them and it gives them something to hold on to when things are really hard. And honestly, that's a huge part of why we even made the damn show. So to know that it does that is just really, really gratifying.
2: Yeah, so speaking of social media, we planned which platforms we'd focus on. So we chose Facebook because... Everyone has one. Uh, Twitter, because there's a very active podcast community on there.
1: Hi, Ellie. Yeah,
2: yeah. Instagram is it's extremely popular. And Tumblr, because a lot of our ideal audience spends a lot of time there.
1: So, um, I want to talk about our marketing narratives. Um, so, we're not going to go into detail on what marketing narratives are exactly, because that's they're very complex and highly individual things, um, and we're newbies. <laughs> um, but... You know, basically, the short version is that a marketing narrative is, you know, it's the what is the thing? Why is the thing? Who made the thing? Who is it for? And what's it going to do for that person? Um, But all tied up like a nice little story with a beginning, middle and
2: end. So for us, we had a few marketing narratives. Um, The simplest and the one you might have uh, seen more is Love and Luck is a fictional radio play podcast told via voicemails. It's a sweet, queer love story with a touch of magic made for people who like healthy relationships and happy endings.
1: Now that tells you what it is, but also why you might care and why it might be for you. Um, Marketing narrative is an invitation to your audience to take part in your project. It's there to give information, but, you know, get them, get them, come on in, like this is for you kind of thing. So we wrote different marketing narratives uh, for different parts of the production
2: Uh, So, for example, uh, in terms of our location and our team, we have Love & Luck is a queer love story written and produced by an all-queer team. Queerness is the default in Love & Luck. We live in our own world with our own culture. Set in Melbourne, Australia, Love & Luck often uses real queer celebrities, organisations, venues and events for its story.
1: Um, And a marketing narrative for me and why I made the show was, you know, I made Love and Luck because I wanted a story where queer love is not only okay but good and beautiful. Um, I wanted to write a story where someone like me was, you know, loved and had the power, literal magic power in the case of the show, to not only have a good life but make the world better.
2: Uh, it's important to note that it's rare that we copy and paste from our marketing plan. Um, every time you write something, you need to tailor it accordingly. So that's what we do. Uh, we just use the narratives and the marketing plan as a template to work from.
1: Right. So all this marketing planning is great, um, but it's useless unless you know what you're actually aiming for. Um, so we needed to decide what success meant to for us specifically, or more specifically, what a successful show, like what a successful launch, sorry, would look like.
2: Uh, So obviously the main goal is to gain and retain subscribers and have an active fan base on social media. Uh, So to figure out what that actually means for us, you have to pick some numbers. So, being that this was our first podcast, our first audio project, um, we had extremely
1: limited funds to go towards advertising. My goal was for 100 people to listen to the show at launch. Um, We launched with three episodes, so I wanted to see 300 downloads on that first day. Now, that might sound really, really small, but, you know, it was something that I felt was achievable, but it was still high enough that I would feel satisfied if we got it.
2: Uh, So, obviously, it's great to go viral, but you can't plan for that.
1: (laughs) Um, We're not going to go too much into detail on media outreach or press kits, although we will mention them a bit later on. Um, But hopefully that gives you an idea of where our marketing plan kind of started.
2: All right. So, I think that covers most of the pre-production planning. Shall we move on to writing?
1: Yay, let's talk about suffering. (laughs) (laughs) So I wrote all 50-odd episodes per season of Love and Luck on my own in the total of about three or four months per season because I'm an insufferable type A sort of person. Um, So the first step of the process is the outline. The outline is a summary of all the big important stuff that happens in the season. Um, Now, for season one, it was just a rolling summary. I just kind of, you know, scribbled it out. Um, But for season two, I was a lot more organised about it. I actually split the outline up per episode so that I could make sure that, like, the pacing of the season was good, but also that each episode had a point to make. Um, Now, there's two reasons why the outline is really important. The first is that it lets you get a bird's eye view of the season and sort of, you know, make sure it's paced good and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But the second reason is writer's block. Because, see, if I have an outline... I know what has to happen in the show. So if any point during the actual writing of the content I get blocked or confused or stuck, all I have to do is go look at my outline and that'll show me where I need to go. Now the outline doesn't get me there, I still have to make those decisions, but it's a lot easier to write if you know where you're going. So once the outline is done, uh, then it's time to settle in and write the first draft. Um, the first season uh, draft writing coincided with NaNoWriMo, um, which if you're not familiar is National Novel Writing Month. It's not national, it's very international these days, but that's what it's called. Um, so that worked out really well for me because it meant I had moral support while I wrote this long, long piece of work. Um, and due to our yearly production cycle, I'm going to be writing love and luck scripts for NaNoWriMo for the foreseeable future. <laughs>
2: right, so let's talk about first drafts.
1: Yeah, so there's a saying about first drafts, which is that every first draft is perfect because all a first draft has to do is exist. And I think that is 100% correct. Um, First draft is just get the damn thing out. Um, Getting it onto paper or onto computer, in my case. Um, And this is something NaNoWriMo is really good for because the goal is to write 50,000 words in a month. They don't have to be good words. They just have to exist. Um, Now, I will say I'm a little more delicate with my first draft than a lot of writers are, um, and a large part of that is due to the fact I can't then spend months and months reworking it. Um, Now, it will get a second draft, it'll get edited, it'll, you know, be massaged and all that, but at the end of the day, the bulk of the first draft will probably end up in the final result. Um, and the, as I said, the reason for that is purely time. If I had an entire year to work on a script, you know, it would be wonderful. But I don't have a year because we start casting in February and, you know, th- you know, uh, it's, it, I can't just write anything and worry about it later because later is a month from now and the editor it will be me. So <laughs> I just do my best. Um, I write about 2,000 words a day in November with a couple of days off. Um, and by the end, I will have the first draft of the of the script, uh, which I then send to my editor and some friends and to Lee, you know, to get some feedback. Um, and this is really, really valuable. Even if they're not, you know, writers themselves, people will find problems that you didn't notice or help you fix problems that you did notice, but you just didn't know how to make it resolve well. Um... Yeah, so second draft usually takes longer than the first, Um, usually takes two and a bit months usually for the second draft. Um, I actually don't edit a base script. Um, I open the first draft on one side of my widescreen monitor and open a fresh document on the other and I actually rewrite the entire script. Um, And I do that because, as mentioned, I have memory problems and if I make changes on one document, I'm going to have trouble remembering what got changed. Um, So second draft, iron out the wrinkles, make the word flow better, cut things that need cutting, add things that need adding. Um, Yeah. So once the second draft is done, all that's left, you just polish it up and then we're ready to start casting. Um, However, before we get to that, I just want to talk about deadlines in terms of making artistic things because, you know, this started with a deadline for writing and we came with deadlines for the show. Um, Deadlines are how things get done you can tweak something over and over trying to make it better and to a certain extent you'll succeed but like it's never going to be exactly what you pictured because it's real and it's not in your head Um, and there's a running joke amongst writers that we think everything we write is garbage and I'm not different there's a part of me that's convinced everything I write is garbage But what I think is important to remember is that your audience won't necessarily see it that way. Um, I would like to mention the two cakes theory of media consumption. This is from a meme from Tumblr. So (laughs) for uh, (laughs) for those listening who can't see the picture... Uh, There is a person labelled the artist who is putting a cake on a table uh, next to a much bigger and fancier cake and they say, oh man, that guy's cake is way better than mine. Um, And in the next panel, there is a person with a knife and fork ready to eat these cakes and they say, holy shit, two cakes! (laughs) Um, Your cake doesn't have to be the best cake to be delicious. Um, And, you know, tastes are different and just because you don't like it, for someone else it's their favourite cake ever. Um, So yeah, that's how the show gets written So let's talk about casting and performance
2: Alright, so originally when Aaron wrote the story He had planned that he would voice Kane And I would voice Jason Despite being fairly sure of this We decided to record our own auditions And listen to them to see if they sounded right
1: And thank God we did Because I was very, very wrong Um, We listened to our auditions And it just became immediately clear That I should be the one voicing Jason And he should be voicing Kane
2: Um, Yeah Uh, So, for our supporting characters, we decided very early on that we wanted to use local actors rather than remote actors. Uh, The main reason for this is that we're such a Melbourne show that it would have felt wrong to use remote actors. Um, Plus, we had decided at this point to record at a recording studio, so we needed people to actually get to the studio.
1: So the main thing we look for in casting um, isn't acting experience or anything like that. Um, It's mostly just a sense of whether or not the voice feels right for the character. It's a very instinctual and visceral sort of thing. Um, Acting ability really isn't as important as you might think. Um, Most of our actors have no prior voice acting experience. Um, Some of them had some theatre experience, but a good at least half of them had no acting experience at all. It just really doesn't matter that much because you can get a good performance out of anyone if you just give them the right support and have enough rehearsals. Um, I will say, though, when I say we look for a voice that sounds right, um, we don't do that without being very mindful of our biases. So that can include things like we don't listen to auditions until auditions close because if you listen to one audition one week and then a a week later, that's going to affect how you feel about it. Um, We also, we don't consider accents in casting at all, because like, it's Australia, it's like, so many different types of people live here, and Australian can sound like anything. And we try to be open to the possibility that the right voice will come along and it just doesn't sound like what we were expecting it to sound like, which did happen with a couple of characters.
2: All right. So let's talk about demographics because that's actually pretty important to our casting.
1: Yeah. So um, it's important to us that we cast queer people um, to start with, but it's also important to us to cast as correct to type as we can. So for example, we have two trans women characters in the show with dialogue and that role was only open to trans women. Um, And that goes for other things as well. Our non-binary character is voiced by a non-binary person. Our characters who aren't white are voiced by people of colour. And it's important to us to cast that correctly.
2: On that note, should we tell everyone about our huge mistake? Yes.
1: So we made a big mistake. (laughs) Halfway through production on season one, we realised that our entire cast was white. Um, Now that was accidental, but it still happened. Um, Now, we've done our best to fix this. Uh, Season two, I wrote explicitly non-white characters in and we cast accordingly. Um, But we also cast almost exclusively people of colour in season two um, for characters that have no race identified as well.
2: So our cast is much better now and this is something we're working really hard to keep in mind going forwards because that was a really unacceptable mistake on our part. It was really unacceptable. All right, so what makes for a good audio drama performance?
1: So, you talk too fast for audio drama, so do I, so does everyone. Um, Because even if you write a fast-paced show with fast-paced dialogue, you probably would still need to slow it down for audio drama from natural speech. Slower speech is a lot easier to understand, it's a lot clearer, and it expresses emotion a lot more effectively.
2: Um, And in our case, we had to slow down a lot more than usual. Um, There's two main reasons for this. The first is that we're a slow-paced show. Um, Slower-paced speech is a more natural fit for the tone of our show. Um, The second reason is that accessibility is really important to us, and there's a lot of conditions that make slower speech easier to understand, and we want those people to feel welcome as our audience.
1: Um, Another good thing, uh, another thing that makes for good audio drama performance is actually overacting. Um, I often tell my actors during rehearsal that if you feel like you're overdoing it, you're probably about right. Um, Because with audio drama, we don't have body language. We often don't have narration. So we have to get all of this character filtered down to the nuance in a person's voice. So this means that to sound natural, you actually need to sound a bit more than natural.
2: And the most important thing for getting a good audio drama performance is rehearsals.
1: Yeah, the the more rehearsals you do, the better your performance will be.
2: Um, So we usually do two main rehearsal sessions with our actors. Uh, We do a table read and then we come back to do a check-in.
1: Right, so the first rehearsal, the table read, is about defining the direction of the performance. We go through the script with the actor, we give them feedback, and we tweak the tone as necessary.
2: Uh, Then we send them home to practice on their own, and we'll come back a couple of weeks later to check in. Um, This second rehearsal is more about polishing the performance so it's ready for recording.
1: Yeah, we don't usually do a third check-in unless the actor requests it. Um, it's just usually not necessary. Actors are perfectly fine, you know, capable of going home and practicing at home without directors breathing down their neck the whole time.
2: Yeah, so for season one, we mostly did our rehearsals over Skype and then met people at the studio for recording. But for season two, we've mostly been doing in-person rehearsals.
1: And we're probably going to keep it that way. Um, there's a lot of detail and nuance in a person's voice that just gets lost over Skype or Discord, uh, which is something you don't have to worry about for in-person rehearsals. Um, we do still do some remote rehearsals, especially if someone is sick or if their schedule is really tight, things like that.
2: And as for our own rehearsals, we just try to fit them in wherever we can.
1: Yeah, we're usually very busy with other production work, so our rehearsals just get slotted in like wherever they'll fit.
2: Alright, so we're all rehearsed. Everything's looking good. Let's talk about recording.
1: Yay. So, originally, as I mentioned earlier, I was planning to record the show on my little Zoom H1 at home, um, but I knew I wouldn't get the kind of quality I wanted. Partially because we live in a very busy neighbourhood, but mostly because I just didn't know anything about recording back then. So I didn't have the technology I wanted and I didn't know what the best technology would be. Um, And by this point, people had found our social media and we're getting really excited about this show we were producing. Um, So I wanted to give them something that was really good. Um, So the scope was changing. Uh, We had been a tiny project, but now it had grown and it needed more resources and attention. So I considered recording studios and then found out how much they cost and quickly unconsidered recording studios. (laughs) However, um, a friend of mine let me know that the Kathleen Syme Library and Community Centre in Melbourne has a recording studio for cheaper rates, depending on if you're a member or a business or things like that. Um, So Lee very graciously paid for all of season one's studio time, um, so that's where we recorded. Um, And this has a double benefit because the Kathleen Syme being a community center is completely accessible. So we didn't have to worry about casting people with mobility issues because we knew we could accommodate them. Um, And, you know, as a disabled person myself, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah. Um, So, also, it's just really nice to record in a community centre. Our season two rehearsals were also in the community centre in uh, meeting rooms, and it just kind of makes the whole podcast feel more like a community project than just, like, one thing that we're making.
2: Yeah. Now, to use the studio, I had to take an induction course so that I knew how to handle everything in there, how to set up and pack up, things like that. And, of course, the studio is BYO Engineer. Now I knew I didn't have the knowledge um, or the skill
1: to get what I wanted out of a studio, which is a scope problem, so one way to solve a problem like that is outsourcing. Um, I didn't have the money to actually hire someone, um, not for season one anyway, but I am friends with a lot of artists because I'm queer and I live in Melbourne. Now, I hate asking for free labor. I don't think it's a very nice thing to do. But I also know that I've done free work for friends before because I like them or I believe in the project or a whole bunch of reasons. So I made myself be open to the possibility that a sound engineer friend might be interested in helping us out. Uh, So I made a fake... Facebook post, Um, and the possibility was real. Our friend Kermie was like, yeah, I'm interested. Send me the script. So I sent them the script, and they were like, yeah, I'm on. And they came and helped us with all the recording.
2: And we are incredibly grateful for that. Incredibly grateful the show
1: would not sound nearly as good as it does without Kermie in the control box. Um, And thanks to our Season 2 Kickstarter, we can actually pay them this year.
2: Yay. Now, if you're listening to this and you're feeling a bit intimidated because you want to make stuff and you don't have access to a studio please don't worry about it. A studio is not necessary for a good podcast.
1: Yeah, we want to be clear about this. The studio was the right choice for us. It doesn't mean it's the right choice for everyone. Um, Now, because I know the gearheads will want to know, let's talk about the equipment we use for recording. Um, Just to remind you, this equipment belongs to the studio, not to us. So we record on Rode NT1 condenser microphones, Um, NT1As, sorry, Um, into Avid Pro Tools via a Universal Audio Apollo 16 uh, audio interface um, and an Avid C24 24-channel controller and mixer.
2: And ironically, we take the recordings made on all that really expensive equipment and Aaron edits the show on Audacity. Um, (laughs) But, but, yeah, (laughs) we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, Let's talk about our actual recording process first. So... We
1: record our actors separately, um, and I added everything together later. For season one, we recorded all our actors, our other actors, all in one just big chunk per actor, because they didn't have a lot of lines. Um, And we recorded ourselves together, but alternating for each episode. Season two is a lot more complex. So we are recording each character and episode separately for each character.
2: Uh, We actually have a giant checklist, which you can see part of here, which lists every episode any given character is in and has a file name for that episode. This way we can tick off each file when we finish recording it. And we know for certain that we got everything we needed to get.
1: Um, the giant checklist lives in our production Bible, uh, which you can see here. Um, our production Bibles have the checklist. They have the recording schedule, both date and time for every actor. They also have the entire script organized via by actor. Um, so let's talk about the structure of our recording sessions.
2: All right. So the first and last half hour of each session, that's um, set aside for setup and pack up. Um, From there, our usual positions are that Kermie, our engineer, stays in the control room, Aaron stays in the studio, and I move around to wherever I'm needed.
1: Yeah, I find it much easier to direct if I'm actually in the room with my actor, rather than trying to talk back over the talk back line.
2: Uh, And when the actors come in, we give them a talent release form to sign, and we give them a bottle of water that they can step out and take a swig from if needed. Dry throats make for terrible voices, so it's really important to have water around when you're recording
1: outside the studio where you can't spill it on the equipment agreed (laughs) so once we're set up we bring in the first person to be recorded do a sound check sound checks can backfire if you are working with actors who have theater experience because they talk normally but then when they perform they project their voice um, which ruins all the good work that Comey does, and we have to readjust the levels all over again. <laughs> yep.
2: Now, the first recording we take of each actor each session is them stating their credits name and their pronouns. So this lets us make sure that their names are pronounced correctly during the credits. Um,
1: then we start recording the actual dialogue. Um, we take two takes of every message. Um, if I'm not happy, we'll do a third one, um, and maybe another one after that, but usually that's not necessary, and if we are having that much trouble, we'll usually come back to that line another day. Um, Sometimes we have to take a break, do some deep breathing and give our actors some reassurance because people get nervous when it comes time to record.
2: Um, So we take our recording quite seriously, but we're actually pretty casual about it while we're there, aren't we?
1: Yeah, look, at the end of the day, this is a project we do for fun. Um, If it's not fun to make, it's not worth doing. Um, We chat when our actors arrive and we have a laugh and it almost certainly adds some time to our schedule, but like... Happy actors are better actors and happy producers are better producers and a happy team makes for a better project. Um, But even if that wasn't the case, I'm not really interested in sacrificing the pleasure of making the show for a better end product. I would much rather be happy making garbage than be miserable making a masterpiece.
2: So once we're all recorded, what comes next?
1: So, next we come to editing, mixing, captioning. Now, we're not going to focus too much on the nitty-gritty of mixing because we're at a podcast conference and you can find other stuff about that. Um, But we are going to focus on the things that are relevant to audio drama um, and accessibility specifically.
2: Yeah, with the exception of a couple of big bugbears, we're just going to keep this part short.
1: So, as mentioned, I edit the show in Audacity. Um, It might be considered more professional to use Audition or Reaper or something like that. But honestly, Audacity is actually a pretty powerful program if you know how to use it. Um, And I like the fact it's free. (laughs) Um, We already spend a lot of money getting really high quality recordings, which is the best way to get a high quality recording so the editing you know we don't need any kind of fancy equipment to get a good quality
2: sound yeah you you can't fix a bad recording in post so it's just better to start with a good recording
1: yeah so we use juke deck for our music um, which is a site that generates music via an algorithm Um, this keeps costs down which means our licensing fees are very very small um, for sound effects, we use a mix of licensed and public domain sound effects. Some public, sound, public domain sound effects are fine, but generally speaking, we found that you get what you pay for. Um, for really high quality sound effects that actually express the things we want to express, um, we usually had to pay for them. Uh, which we're kind of fine with
2: anyway. We like to pay people for their work when we can.
1: Yeah, so our free sound effects we mostly get from, got from freesound.org. Um, and our paid sound effects we mostly got from audiojungle.net. So one thing I was really excited to find on Audio Jungle was the Australian ringing dial tone. Um, I was expecting to have to use an international dial tone. Um, So that was a really great discovery and it just makes the show feel so much more real to me. Um, In a related, very difficult to find sound, we could not find any available sounds of the iconic Melbourne trams. Every tram sound effect and recording we could find was from another country, but... You know, If you've been to Melbourne, you know Melbourne trams have a very distinct sound, and I did not like the idea of having to fudge that. Um, So I actually put a call out on Twitter, and thankfully Kyle Evans of squeakyfish.com.au came to our rescue um, and supplied us with some beautiful field recordings that we were given permission to use. Do you want
2: to talk about the beep?
1: I don't want to talk about the beep, but I will.
2: So the show is told via voicemails, and this means we needed a beep sound effect for the voicemail. Now, there is no way we're going to use the actual voicemail beep because it is shrill and extremely unpleasant to listen to.
1: Yeah, this was a sound effect that people were going to hear multiple times per episode in every single episode of the show. So at the very least, it had to be not horrible to listen to and ideally be pleasant. So how many sound effects did you listen to? I listened to over 300 different beep sound effects before I finally settled on the one we use in the show. 300? (laughs) 300? Yes. I actually don't know how many it was. I know that it was over 300, but I have no idea what the actual number was. Yeah, You eventually picked one from a sensor pack, didn't you? Yes, and I chose it because it's a lower frequency beep and it's completely smooth. So it's about as unobtrusive as a high-pitched beep can be. Um, So do you want to touch on normalisation? Yes, I do, because this is a bugbear of mine. Um, So normalisation, as you probably know, is where you even out the volume of a recording so it's not too quiet in some parts and too loud in another. Um, Something that bothers me in a lot of podcasts is that it's very clear to me that the mixers were not using their subjective hearing when they are normalising. Like DB and Lufs and stuff are great guides for volume, but they're technical measurements. They're not subjective human experience. Um, It's not enough for the volume to be technically correct. It must sound right. Um, The biggest thing that annoys me in podcasts is when the music is mixed to the same peaks as the speech. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Music is subjectively a lot louder than speech. And if you mix like that, it's just going to be too loud. Um, So please, if you take nothing else away from this session, please use your subjective hearing when you're (laughs) normalising.
2: Alright, so let's talk about captions because we're pretty unusual due to the fact that we use them. All of our episodes are released on YouTube with captions alongside our RSS.
1: Yep, so accessibility, in case you haven't realised yet, is a huge passion of mine Um, as a disabled person. It affects everything in Love and Luck um, from the delivery of our lines to the way I mix um, to the fact we only mix in mono rather than stereo so people with one-sided hearing loss can still enjoy the show. Um, So it was never a question for me of whether we would have captions. Um, It was always an assumed part of my workflow. Um, Now, there are lots of reasons why someone might want captions, and I know we're all here thinking, it's an audio medium. Yes. But um, there are lots of deaf and hard of hearing people um, who might want to enjoy the show. There are people with auditory processing disorder, which I have, by the way, so don't think it stops you from enjoying podcasts. Um, Maybe they're autistic. Maybe they only speak English as a second language. Maybe they just really like having the volume low. Like there's tons of reasons why someone might want captions. Um, And we wanted to make sure that we were welcoming those people as our audience.
2: So, because we use captions, we had to use videos, and we just use a very fast formula of the image of the show's title, then an image of the episode's title, and then we play the episode on top of that. Yeah, I put the videos together
1: in Filmora, which is a really, really basic and user-friendly video editing program, um, and we host all our episodes on YouTube, same time they go live on the RSS.
2: Yeah, and one of the great things about YouTube is that it actually has a tool where you just take the transcript, throw it in, and it gives you caption timings, which is really, really simple.
1: Yeah, and it, like, it's not perfect. Obviously, you still have to go in and make adjustments and check that everything is right, but it saves us so much time.
2: Now, you don't have to go to the effort of captions if you don't want to, but we really strongly encourage you to have transcripts of your show available.
1: Um, and one more thing, if you do have transcripts available, do not put them behind a paywall as bonus content, um, because then you're telling disabled people that they have to pay to enjoy your free show. Don't do that.
2: Alright, so we've made a show, we've captioned it, shall we talk about launching it?
1: Yes, so as mentioned previously, marketing needs to start like months before launch, like several months. Um, We posted on social media every step of the way with um, showing photos from recording with actors' permissions, of course. Um, We made sure our website was up and ready, we made sure we had a press kit up and online Um, and we've started a small revolution in audio drama in press kits.
2: Yeah, when we started, almost no one was doing them in audio drama. And now a lot of people are using ours as a template. We received a comment from one of
1: the reviewers, uh, Will Williams, who said that we were the first podcast she'd reviewed that had a press kit. Which I find baffling because (laughs) press kits are a vital part of marketing, make it easy for journalists to talk about you.
2: Yeah, like press kits just make it a lot easier to give media information about you in a way that's really useful. Um, Speaking of which, let's touch very briefly on media outreach.
1: So we had a marketing consultant uh, for our show, Lauren Clinic of Lumi Consulting down in Melbourne. If you're in video games, look them up. That's their area of expertise. Um, we didn't know anything about media outreach, so Lauren helped us a lot in like, helping us come up with a plan and like giving us a little bit of training.
2: Now, again, we're not going to go into detail because we are running very over time, um, but basically... Um,
1: yeah, so don't beg for coverage. Offer a story and don't take it personally if, they, if you don't hear back
2: because journalists are all doing the work
1: of about three people these days.
2: Um, and also, don't discount the power of independent media like blogs, YouTubers, and even other podcasts. Yeah, we were very
1: unlucky with traditional media, but we did get lucky with like, community radio and other podcasts.
2: All right, so in terms of the actual launch day, we decided to launch with three episodes so that people could get a feel for the show.
1: Yeah, um, and we decided to throw a physical launch party
2: um, a couple of days before the episodes dropped
1: online. Um, we basically ran it like a film premiere. Uh,
2: and then we showed five episodes at that event, so two more than we'd launch with online.
1: Yeah, and in terms of our virtual launch, um, that was a little more complicated. We planned things to cover the entire day of launch. we ran giveaways on all our social media that day. Um, to enter, people would tag us or use hashtag LoveLuckPodcast and tell us something that made them feel loved or lucky.
2: Um, and then we also ran two live streams on the launch day, one on Instagram and one on Facebook. And
1: for the live streams, we talked about making the show and we showed off our cats and answered audience questions and drew winners for the... I'm not kidding about the cats. We really did that. Um, and then we dropped the episodes... Um, And it went really, really well. Um, We did reach our 300 downloads on the first day, just like I wanted. Um, Thank you. (laughs) Um, And these days we actually get something like over 1,200 downloads a week. So, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so
2: that pretty much sums up a year in our lives of making audio drama.
1: Yay. Yay. So. (laughs) (laughs) If we... If we have time, we will now take
2: audience <laughs> questions. Um, okay, so my main question is, you're talking about casting people. Obviously, you want to cast non-binary people for non-binary roles and so forth. Um, and like I'm making, writing roles in that into my second season of my own podcast. How do you go about finding people who are identify as that who will be willing to join your podcast? Because obviously, they may be less represented. You may know fewer people who identify as that.
1: Um. So, we made a huge mistake and we didn't utilise things like casting websites. Um, So, learn from our mistakes and do that. Please, do that. We basically just put the call out to the queer community and people would share it around. Um, We didn't get tons of auditions. I'm not going to say we did. Um, But we got enough that we could cast appropriately.
2: Yeah, there, there were a couple of points where we were like we were really worried about some roles going. Oh, that doesn't seem. There's to be no that one. Many.
1: No one's auditioned yet. <laughs> but but um, you know, you,
2: you wait until the deadline and they all come through. So you know.
1: And um, well, no, that's not true. We did have at least uh, one character who, uh, one of the trans women characters, who we actually said we still haven't received any auditions for this. Like, I mean, I'm trans, so I'm connected to the trans community. So I was like, please, folks, like. Tell your friends, like, because especially, you know, any marginalised group, even if they are interested, they're going to go, oh, I'm not good enough. And, you know, that imposter syndrome, So you've just got to battle past that and yell, no, you're great, audition! <laughs> <laughs> um, I did a lot of yelling like that when we were casting. <laughs> Hi
0: there, thank you so much for your presentation. Oh, um, thank you. Uh, my question's also in relation to casting. Um, And particularly the auditions, how did you actually... Were the auditions via um, Skype or like what was the actual? I,
1: I love you for asking this because I cut it from the presentation because it went <laughs> long. So um, we took auditions via email. We literally mm-hmm. just said it recorded on your phone. It doesn't matter. We're recording in a studio so audio quality yep. does not matter. I actually wrote different lines for the auditions okay. because if you use lines from the script A, there might be spoilers and mm-hmm. B, you're not necessarily going to get the range that you need over the whole script. Okay. Um, so I wrote separate lines. We posted them up. We wrote you know, send your, like, audition to us at at loveandlockpodcast.gmail. You know, tell us a bit about yourself. And, yeah, like, we we did it very, very casually, um, which we could do because we were using local actors. Um, We're currently producing a second podcast. um, But we're we're experimenting with remote actors on that one. Uh, We got 500 auditions for that, um, for global casting. So, yeah. Um, So, yeah, like... In terms of casting local, that tends to be, like, pretty easy. You just kind of put it out there and you'll hear back from a few people. Casting globally is a whole other thing that we're still learning from our mistakes on.
0: <laughs> and and do you... Because you have connections to um, the, the theatre community. Because I'm yes. looking at doing this and I don't... Most of my connections are... Because I run a history podcast. Mm-hmm. All they're musicians. Um, and it's yep. about the
1: Australian music community, so... So um, one thing, don't discount, like I said, don't discount non-actors. Just put that call out and just be like, never done anything before. Who cares? Come on down. Um, You know, because people are excited for Mm -hmm. stuff like this. Um, Also, there are websites like I think Star Casting and things like that. You can post casting calls to um, that I completely forgot about when we were casting for this show. Um, But that's probably a good way to go. Yes. That's great. Thanks, that was so brilliant. Um, I just wanted to ask, I would love to hear a little bit more about the Kickstarter that you did and also about funding, monetizing, sponsorship, how you've gone down that road because you're obviously coming from an amazing project management um Perspective, so I'm sure that's in there somewhere. <laughs>
2: um, we have no, no
1: funding, um, so the Kickstarter, we did a Kickstarter for season two, and that was hell. It was so hard.
2: Um, We're not going to say that kickstarting isn't isn't good for everyone. Oh, it's a great like, idea, but, but the thing great. is, it's the thing is, kickstarting is a month of hell. Like it is a lot of work. You, and, have you to know, three months. So mo- a
1: Kickstarter is a project in itself. Yeah, we did like three months of prep before we launched, and we only just reached our goal. Um, yeah. Kickstarters, oh, it's real hard. Um, yep. First season, we literally just paid for out of pocket. Yeah, um, We we were actually having a discussion earlier about funding. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't do grants because we have no experience with grant applications. And also most grants want something new, not something that's in progress. Yep. Um, we also don't know. Look, I struggle with the sponsorship thing. I kind of want to keep the show commercial free. Um, which means we are probably looking at, if not another Kickstarter, we're talking about opening up a Patreon, which is a very common, especially in audio drama. Yeah. Um, we're still figuring that out, is my answer
2: to that, basically. Yeah. Well, one more question. Yeah. I'm I'm really happy to hear about um, everything, but um, especially what you're doing with accessibility because I think that that's uh, not nearly enough attention is paid to that in in our industry. I'm wondering whether you've got um, the ability to measure how how successful you're being with that?
1: Unfortunately, the only measurement we have on that is people talking to us. Um, Um, Oh, that's
2: not quite true. Um, Since we are on YouTube, YouTube does actually give you stats on who uses captions. So we do have a reasonable idea that I think, like, maybe about... Um, Five to ten percent of our audience use captions on YouTube. I didn't even know that. (laughs) So there you go. Well, I'm the stats guy. That's what I do. Yeah,
1: (laughs) Um, yeah, mostly otherwise it's just people telling us and people saying, oh, thank you for having captions or, you know, us having a website that's, like, screen reader, readable and stuff like that.
0: Thank you very much. And we'll be back at uh, 4.30 all together for the final session of the day. Thank you. Thanks to Erin Kyan and Lee Davis Thorburn, the producers of the audio fiction drama Love and Luck. This year we also went under the hood with Robert Smith, the host of NPR's Planet Money. To get some insights into how he unriddles numbers and economics, subscribe and check out the rest of the recordings from the Audiocraft Podcast Festival. This podcast is produced by Selena Shannon, with music by James Milsom. We'd love to stay in touch, so sign up to our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au and follow us on Facebook and Twitter, we're at AudioCraft Fest.